The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You know, this week, I don't believe any of us were able to get through the week without seeing uh, something on TV about Muhammad Ali, about his life, an American icon that he is, was, but also about his death and the memorial service and funeral that he had as a devout uh, Muslim. And I was struck most especially in an interview with one of his very dear friends who said that he would run with Ali regularly and speak with him regularly. And each day Ali would say something to the effect of, I hope that today I've done enough good to go and to be in heaven. I hope that today I do enough that is good to be accepted. And the thought that this week it's the high festivals and feasts of Islam, of Ramadan, and the tradition and belief is that if you die, a good Muslim, a faithful Muslim dies during Ramadan, they go directly to heaven and receive their reward. And I thought about that as contrasted to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that says this, you will never be good enough. Each day you can wake and try your very best and you can never do enough to earn the favor of God or to gain entrance into heaven no matter when you die or how devout or pious and righteous you are. That it takes someone else to stand in your place. Every world religion, every other religion, even church religions, say that it's man working towards God and gaining something from God by doing or not doing certain things. Only Christianity, only the gospel says to us it is Christ who stepped in in his perfection and lived the life that we couldn't lead, died the death that we should have died, took on the pain and the wrath that was designed for us, took it upon himself and gave to us his very perfect righteousness so that we, no matter when we die, go into the very presence of God forever. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the very essence of the difference of if someone says to you, well, doesn't everybody just serve the same God? The answer is always no. For there is no other God in any other religion that says, I'm going to come myself into your midst and live among you and take on my wrath on myself so that you who rebelled against me and hated me could become my sons and daughters and the very treasures of my life. That's the difference of the gospel. That's what you need to understand and know. That's what we've been studying together now since last fall. And we're coming near to the end, to the summation now of this great letter uh, to the Roman church that Paul wrote while in Corinth. That he was writing about these truths to say this is what we believe. This is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who God is. This is who man is in relation to this God. This incredible chasm and gap uh, that stands between them. But the absolute assurance that we have. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of salvation to close that gap. To span that gap. The power of salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek to all who believe. That's what we believe to be true. And you need to know that. Because what you believe matters. Do you believe that? 
What you believe matters because what you believe about any particular thing informs and instructs you on how you are going to live or relate to that thing. You have certain faith assumptions today. Some people go, well, I'm not a religious person. Everybody's a religious person. Everybody, the word religion comes, uh, some believe, many believe from a, a, a root in the Latin that means tied to. It's your belief. It's what you're tied to, your faith commitments. You made a certain faith commitment uh, when Matt said, be seated. That's a faith commitment. You believe that these chairs are going to hold you up. We make faith assumptions, and then we act upon those faith assumptions. Paul is saying, I just want to make sure you have the right faith assumptions. I want to make sure you understand God so fully that who he is, that you are willing to enter into relationship with him on his terms, not on yours. There's no negotiations in this at all. There's no debating. It is God saying, I'm God. I created everything. I started everything. Therefore, I get to make all the rules. We don't like that as human beings, do we? We never have. But he says, this is how it works. And so here's how it works now. This is how you come to know me, through my son, Jesus Christ. How unbelievably condescending and loving and merciful and gracious of me to come and to do this on your behalf. And I'm giving it to you for the low, low cost of free. Nothing that you do to gain it, I simply give it to you. So would you receive it? And then once we receive it, we then appropriate it into our lives and begin to live out of that verse Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, therefore, because of all of these things that you believe to be true, that you know to be true, that actually are true, capital T. They're not true because I believe them. They're true because they're true. And so we come to them and say, now, because these things are true, now, therefore, present your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. That now, I'm going to live by these faith assumptions by these truths, that I'm creating for myself a Christian worldview. I'm creating for myself a way that I view everything. It affects every single thing that I do, this gospel message. So if you're here today and you're exploring Christianity or maybe you're tipping your toe back into the church for the first time, I want to be upfront with you. This Christ that we're presenting to you wants to touch every area of your life. He, he wants to get in there and say, okay, now I'm Lord not just of this part of you, but I'm Lord of all of your life. And so we spend the rest of our lives subduing those other little kingdoms that we have, subduing our marriage, subduing our work, subduing our emotions, subduing everything and bringing them under the reign and lordship of Christ Jesus. That's chapters 12 and on and through 16 in Romans. And so now we come to this great part in chapter 15 where Paul is beginning to speak of what does it look like to mature? What does it look like for a Christian to grow in their maturity? There's a sad phenomenon that has happened over the course of the last century and has accelerated uh, even more in our own century, and that is the extension of adolescence. That we have now allowed our children to stay on our health insurance until they're 26, that we're allowing children to go out and just experience life and not to have to grow up, that allow college and university to just simply be a grand experiment. Go and find yourself there at college at the low, low clip of twenty dollars to $30,000 a year. Go and just, you know, you're just boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. What do you expect, Bill? They're only 22. 
Some of the greatest battles in the world were won by generals at 22 years old. Some of the greatest feats in all of history have been done by men and women in their teens and in their early 20s. And we've removed that because we've allowed adolescence to expand. That's my cultural statement today. But the problem with that cultural statement and that cultural move is we've allowed it to happen in the church. That we've basically said of individuals in the church, it's okay to remain young in your faith. It's okay to remain an adolescent. It's okay to remain immature. And Paul would say, absolutely not. You're supposed to start with milk and simple foods in your faith so that you can get used to it and grow in it and understand those things. But then you're to move on to maturity. Now, it is no slight uh, against the author, but for the greatest book in volume sales in the church's history, to be the purpose-driven life is an indictment of the maturity of the Christian church. That Christians don't know their purpose? That's Catechism 101. Parents, teach your children, what is the chief end of man? What's your purpose, child? Oh, my purpose is to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. That's my chief purpose. We should know that when we're this tall. We don't have to wait for a book to be read to us and written to us when we're this tall. And go, oh, that's my purpose in life. Oh, everything's supposed to be centered around God. I get it now. That's awesome. Great book. And I hope that if you've read it, that you're encouraged by it. But you need to move on from that. You need to have in your repertoire a John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Maybe read a little Calvin over here. Maybe read some Piper. Uh, Maybe go so far as to read The Holiness of God. And to go, wow, I want to grow in my understanding of these things, for they inform every bit of my life and who I am. And Paul says here, now, I want you to see what it looks like to be mature. And he begins in verse in chapter 15, so if you have your Bibles, would you get them out and read with me, or we'll follow along on the screen. And Paul looking and saying, this is what it looks like to mature in Christ. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the, uncircumcised, to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for this, his mercy As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, in Isaiah, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, 
so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of your work for God, of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the very reason that why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints to, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered it, that what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will, be, I will come in the fullness of blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. So Paul has aspirations. He has a view, a long-term view, where he says, folks in Jerusalem, he was in Corinth, and he says, folks in, in uh, Rome, I mean, I want to come to you, which would be a short little trip. He said, but I'm going to come to you by way of Jerusalem. So he was heading due west and south, if you would, and he was heading back to Jerusalem, and he knew there that he was going to be taken prisoner, and he was going to be tried, and he was going to have to come then back to Rome Uh, to be tried there and to have a hearing with Caesar uh, and to defend the faith of Christ there. But his hope was to always eventually go to Spain. We don't know if he made it. Some traditions believe that he did. Others don't. But what I take from that is this. Paul had a vision for his life, and it wasn't a short-term vision. It was a vision that said, I want to believe great things that God is going to do through me, and I'm going to look to them in faith for the years to come. I hope you have a similar vision in that way for your life, of what you want to accomplish through the Lord Jesus Christ. But in writing this, he was writing to this congregation in Rome, and he was teaching them several things about Christian maturity. The first thing that we're going to see about maturity is this. A maturing Christian has a concern for others over self. Verses 1 to 4, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for your instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. You see, he says this, in your concern for others over self, you have to bear with one another's failings. 
You have to bear with one another's failings and weaknesses and shortcomings. You see, that presupposes something. It presupposes this. Other people have shortcomings and failures and weaknesses. Go ahead and accept that. Look around you. The person next to you has shortcomings, weaknesses, and failures. If it's your spouse, you can go amen. If it's your parent, you can go amen. If it's your kid, you're going, oh yeah. You know that about other people, so let's act like that's the truth instead of being so surprised when someone fails you. (gasps) How did that happen? How could they have done that to me? Oh my goodness, how did they do that? Well, here's how they did that. They're weak and they have failings. That's what Paul said. Bear with one another's weakness and failings. And you know who else is included in the one another's failings? You are. The person in your seat is also a person with weaknesses and failings. Now, you may not acknowledge that, but you have them. You may not know that you have them, but you have them. For all of us have them. And Paul says, listen, as you're growing, you need to understand that you bear with one another's failings. Folks are going to disappoint you and fail you. They're going to hold positions that you don't hold. They're going to be different from you. They're going to have these problems in their lives, just like you have problems in your lives. And one of the things that we need to understand in the middle of this is that we need to be humble enough to recognize that we have our weaknesses as well. And if you don't know what those weaknesses are, because sin, by its very nature, hides itself. We have blind spots. We can't see certain places on our bodies, and we can't see certain places in our own soul uh, that are blind. So what you need to do is to go to a person who loves you, who has your best interest in mind, who you know will speak truth to you, but do it in a way that is honoring to you and to the Lord, and ask them this, what are my weaknesses and failings? Would you be willing to share those with me? And if that person trusts that you're actually asking that as an honest question and that the response won't be rebutted with, well, you can point that out about me, but what about you? If you do that, by the way, stop before you start. But you come and you say, I want to know about myself. I've got blind spots and I want to know what my weaknesses and failings are. I want to see what those are. We're starting a men's ministry in the fall, and part of it, uh, there's a responsibility of the man, if he's married, to come to his spouse, and he has a contract, if you would, with his spouse uh, that says to her, uh, I'm going to be gone for seven nights over the course of the fall, and I'm going to be committing my life to become more like Christ in the ministry of men, to grow, to be more like Christ, and I just want you to know that I'm going to do that. And she's going to sign off on that and agree that that's a good use of the time of seven nights out uh, of your fall. And then there's another question for her, and it lists all of the fruits of the Spirit, and it says of her, which of these fruits would you like to see most developed in your husband's life over the course of the fall? Because guess who knows you better than anybody else if you're married? It's your spouse. And if that spouse, your family, your most intimate friends, don't see change in you, then change probably isn't happening. And we always want to be growing And so we want to see and be humble enough to recognize these weaknesses. I've told you about a wonderful man uh, who I knew who had been married, still is married, 60-some years now. And I asked him, what's the secret of your marriage? And he said, Bill, every morning I wake up and I look in the mirror and I say to the man in the mirror, you're not that special either. He recognized his weaknesses because he said this, if I'm a man who has these weaknesses and has these problems, how can I hold in judgment over my wife her weaknesses and her judgments and her, and her shortcomings? But I have to acknowledge my own, that I have a concern for others over and against myself. 
that I have a desire to build these others up at a cost to myself. I'm willing to take on their needs. I'm willing to engage in their suffering. I'm willing to engage in their lives. And this is difficult, isn't it? And it's not something that we really enjoy doing. And we look and we go, you mean I've got to deal with that person? If you knew this person like I know this person, I've been around this person a long time. How is it that I'm going to be with this person? I don't want to be with this person. You know what Paul does? Paul goes all the way to the end and throws the Jesus trump card on you. All of our arguments, all of our pushbacks, look what Paul says. Paul goes, oh, well, guess what? Christ did not please himself. Should you be different from Christ? But as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For what he was saying was simply this. Paul looks and goes, you know, Christ dealt with your shortcomings and weaknesses. Christ was willing to set aside his own well-being so that he could come and take on your shortnesses and your weaknesses and all of these things about you. And if Christ, the king, was willing to do that, How much more should we be willing to do that with one another? You see, Paul leaves no wiggle room for us to respond in any other way than, yes, sir, I'll go and do that immediately. I'll go and care for others over myself. You see, we also notice that if you do not want another's, if you don't have another's best interest in your mind, then there's most likely a spiritual problem that is taking place. My lack of concern for others actually says nothing about you, and it says everything about me. It shows that my heart has not been ravaged by the, the beauty and the depth of the pervading love of the Savior for me, that I would have a concern for you that is unnatural in the normal human condition. You see, selfishness and pride are the chief enemies of the Christian life and the message of the gospel. And Paul says, for those who are maturing... And for a congregation and a group of individuals, Christians who are maturing, you have a concern for others over and against a concern for yourself. It is a costliness. I don't have time, but if you were to read the latter part of that chapter, that's why I read it. He says, listen, even the impoverished individuals within Macedonia and Achaia were willing to have a concern for others over themselves and to give out of their poverty to care for the needs of those who were in Jerusalem. Paul says that's just how it works. So one of the signs and marks of a maturing Christian is that you have a concern for others over yourself. Another mark that he gives us within this passage is that we, in maturing in our life in Christ, we live in harmony with one another. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Living together in harmony. We just listened to incredibly beautiful music that was harmonious. If you've ever been uh, to Suzuki Violin 101, you will understand what non-harmonious music sounds like. As the little ones are trying to learn chords and trying to learn violin, it is a painful experience. But as a parent, you videotape it and save it, and it's a wonderful experience, but painful for the musical ear. Paul is saying in the same way, it is a painful experience and not beautiful music to the ears of our God when the church does not live in harmony. When we don't live uh, in close and tight relationship 
with one another. And what we learn about this living in harmony, it may go without me needing to state it, but this living in harmony takes endurance and it takes encouragement because it's tough. Right? Any of y'all married? Been married? It's just easy as can be, isn't it? I mean, what's so hard about going and saying to another person, I commit myself to you for the remainder of my days in this world to submit my wants, hopes, and desires to your wants, hopes, and desires. And that my very passion in life is every day to die to myself and to live for Christ by loving you well. This is so easy. I got it. Because I'm 22 and naive. Or I'm 45 and naive. It doesn't matter about age. And we realize it is really difficult to live in harmony. And then what we find is as parents, we think, oh, this is great. We're bringing a kid into this thing. That should just add another level of harmony into the home. And then some are crazy enough to bring another child in. And it says to that child, to the first child, oh, by the way, mom and dad, now all of our love and affection that was yours for the first few years of your life, we're splitting. We're bringing someone else in. So you don't get all of our attention in this, but we want you to love your little brother or little sister and live in harmony. It's just hard. And we need encouragement and we need endurance in the middle of it. So if you're having a tough time, that's okay. I want you to hear that. It's okay. Because relationships and harmonious relationships are difficult but necessary. They're difficult but necessary. They're not easy for us. Because what we find so often in our lives is this. Think of the person that drives you crazy. Now, you got that person, right? Could be the person next to you. What do you normally do when you see that person who drives you crazy, who frustrates you the most? What's your normal response to them? It's to distance yourself from them. It's to find fault in them. When really what we should be doing as we're maturing and working towards harmony is ask better questions. Questions that go something like this. God, why do you have this person in my life? What are you trying to teach me about me? that cannot be brought to the surface by any other person other than this person. What are you showing me? You're showing me my anger. You're showing me my pride. You're showing me my lack of forgiveness. You're showing me a deep resentment. You're showing me things through this other person. And God, I thank you for that other person. Because without this other person in my life, I would stay in adolescence. And I would stay here. But I am going to work hard now with this other person to live harmoniously together, seeing the things that are brought to the surface because of this other person. Isn't that what you do when you see that person? You just run right towards them. I'm so thankful for you. Gosh, you just bring out the worst in me. I just, gosh, I just want you to know you're an answer to prayer because I've been praying that God would change me and he brought you. It's not really what I want you to say, but I do want you to think that way internally to go, God, instead of resenting this individual, I'm going to embrace what you've given me and I need your encouragement and I need your endurance to love this person well and live in harmony with them. And some of you are sitting there now and you're going, no, Bill, you don't know this person. You, 
She may have given birth to me, but she has driven me crazy for the rest of my days. And I can't. I can't deal with mom anymore. I can't deal with dad. I can't deal with junior. I can't deal with him. I may have committed. No, I can't. Bill, you're asking too much. And Paul goes, "Uh, no, I'm not. Because guess what? Christ did this for you. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. He throws the Jesus card again. He trumps us all in this. He says, guess what? If you don't think you were difficult to live with, consider how Christ, the only way that he could make you harmonious with his Father in heaven was for him to die on a cross. That he had to deal with you. But he did it willfully and joyfully. And he did it with great endurance. And he's still enduring us at some level, by the way, with all of our shortcomings and all of our pity parties and all of our little pouting and all of those things. And so he looks and he says, folks, you can do this. You can do this because Christ has done it for you. And at the end of the day, this harmonious relationship that you have with one another brings glory to God. If you want to ask the question, how is it that I can bring God glory? Here's one way. Live well with other people. Have a marriage that sings. Commit today not to simply be roommates on your way to heaven. But commit today to love one another deeply and have a deep and a profound singing marriage and relationship. If you're not married, then in your family, in your friendships, having those deep and profound relationships that bring honor and glory to God. For Christ has done it with us. And then the last couple of things that he says about the maturing life is it's one that looks for others over self. It's one that is harmonious. And it is one that is full. It's one that is full. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Scholars call this section Paul's wish prayer. It is his wish prayer of what he is hoping and expecting in the lives uh, of those who read this, our lives together today. And I hope that you have those wish prayers for those who are around you that you pray in this way. I think I shared with you recently, one evening I was home, and my boys literally, all three of my boys were home for three days this summer of the entire summer. And we were having a meal together, and we were there at the house, and it was just a moment of being full, of looking and being deeply satisfied in that moment in my family and in God's great provision for us. Paul is saying this, I want you to experience the full Christian life, not half measures. Folks, don't be satisfied. It's not that your longings, as Lewis says, that your longings are too deep or too high. It's that they're too shallow and too small. You're satisfied with less wild lovers. You're satisfied with things. I call it carnival food. God has laid out this feast of the finest of foods in front of us. And we're like, I'll take a corn dog and an icy. And he's going, what? This is the best of aged meat and the aged wines. And the best of the best is laid out here for you. He says, come and be filled here. And we're over here dealing with trinkets and carnival food. 
He says, I want you to experience Christ in such a way that you are filled with joy in the Lord. That you find in Christ a satisfaction that brings up great joy in your life when you consider Him and think about Him. It just simply makes you smile. Some of you need to learn how to smile. Sometimes during a sermon would help me. I'm not sure what this means, but I just, I'm hoping it means that the Lord's doing work in your heart. But we smile, we, we feel joy. One of the greatest stories, I can never remember who it was attributed to, Jonathan Edwards or, uh, or Whitfield. But they were riding their horse one day, and they were singing and praying and thinking about God. And he stopped his horse, and he got off his horse within the midst of a field. And in his diary, he wrote, I had to pray that God would withhold his pleasure from me. For I thought if I experienced his joy anymore, I would die. Have you ever experienced anything even close to that? That God is that much of your delight. He's the joy of man's desiring. It is our deepest desire. He says, but for the mature and maturing Christian, we experience joy. If you're not, be concerned. We experience peace with God. Philippians 4, 7, that we have this shalom, this deep, unbelievable flourishing that we've brought in, been brought into relationship with God through Christ, that we have a fullness of hope, that we have a foundation that says, I don't know what is going to happen for the rest of this day, but I know this much to be true. God is on his throne and no matter what happens today, it is through his benevolent hand and I can fully trust him. And I know at the end of the day, it is not just my hope wish That if I die tonight, I go to heaven. But it is my absolute foundational belief that because of the completed work of Christ, that if I die today, I will go and be with him forever. And I have no wavering on that hope. But you're filled with that. And it straightens your back and it pushes your shoulders back. And it makes you approach life with a confidence and an excitement that is lost within the church today. That you are filled with goodness This virtue that is opposed to all that is mean and evil, it includes an uprightness and a kindness and a benevolence of life and heart. Folks, let me encourage you to do something in the midst of goodness. Step away from your keyboards. Things are said on a keyboard that would never be said face to face. But what shows and comes forth through the venom that is produced in what we speak online and what we say on Facebook and what we say in these things, it exposes within us a lack of goodness. There were 20 people killed last night in a homosexual bar in Orlando and 42 more taken to the hospital. Your heart should be broken. And you shouldn't think whether or not homosexuality is right or wrong. Your heart should be broken in the middle of that. There's a goodness within you that weeps when there's pain in the world. Even with those with whom you disagree. And there's a goodness which looks to the betterment of somebody other than yourself. And then he says there's a deep knowledge and we've got to hurry on. That the mature Christian is filled with joy and peace and goodness, and a knowledge, a deep understanding of the gospel, of your Christian faith, and that all of these are given to you by God. You cannot find them in and of yourself. It said, now may God fill you with these things. Again, this picture of pouring. 
May God pour out the fullness of His Spirit in your life and of knowledge and of these truths. It is a supernatural event that happens. And the way that it's phrased here is it's an event that isn't just a one-time event, but is a continual filling. You see, we experience these characteristics of believing and understanding and appropriating the gospel into our lives. So my hope for us as a church is that we're a maturing church. That we are willing to be concerned for others over ourselves, even at great expense to ourselves. That we're willing to work hard to live harmoniously together to the glory of God. And that we're a full church, filled with these qualities of joy and of peace and hope and goodness and the knowledge of the gospel message. And Paul will look at us and say, I'm proud of you. I can look as your pastor and say this of you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for what you're working towards that you're doing something that sadly is unique within the Christian church today. That so many of my brothers in ministry who I'll see next week in our General Assembly are broken and are wounded and are down under the pressure of churches that are filled with strife and of battles and of broken relationships. And I can honestly say of our church, you do well. Be encouraged today, but don't become fully satisfied. Keep pressing on in these things, for it brings glory to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. Thank you for your deep love for us that we can come and celebrate you. Thank you for the promises that you've made to families and to generations that we can see worked out here in our midst in the middle of a mystery. Father, I pray now that each of us here would commit today to grow in our maturity and to let adolescence remain behind as we move on to fullness and completeness in Christ Jesus. To him be the glory. Amen. Let's stand.